is I'm finally awake now. So thank you, Daryl. Yes. Um, so we're going to talk uh, in Exodus chapter 15 through 17 today. Really 16 and 17, but 15 through 17 is the unit we're in. Uh, and in the text today, we're going to talk about uh, a lot of different things. But I invite you to open your Bible. It's going to be on page 55, I believe, in the Pew Bible. I'm sure someone will tell me if I'm wrong. And um, while you turn there, we're going to read a couple different places, so I'd just leave it open, uh, and we'll keep referencing back to it. But I wonder uh, how often you've had this happen, where one small setback ruins your day, or ruins a lot of good. And so I'm going to tell you about the most ordinary circumstance. This is nothing, it's not even an interesting story, but uh, always a good start, right? So... To me, a great morning is, you know, you wake up and you feel well rested. You don't feel like, you know, what just happened? I didn't sleep at all. You wake up, you feel well rested. You go uh, and you make your coffee and it's just better than usual that day. And then uh, at risk of millennial stereotypes, uh, you make your avocado toast. And the avocado is really, they're temperamental, right? Sometimes they're all brown and mushy and they're good for like five minutes. You know, they're like a pocky puck and then they go to brown. But you get it and it's just right and then you take your toast and your perfect coffee and you go sit on the couch and in my house, if a cat comes and joins you and just cuddles with you on the couch, that's like the ultimate sign of divine appointment. Because, and if you're not laughing, it's because you own a dog and you expect that. But for a cat person, you get a cat to cuddle with you like three times a month and it's really special. So you have all of these things line up. Right? And, and it's working and you're like, oh man, this is gonna be a good day. And as you leave the house and you're around the corner and some jerk jumps out of nowhere with his car, almost hits you, almost causes like a three car pile up, and all of a sudden your day is ruined. And all of the good things that happen is like they didn't happen because your mood for the rest of the day now is set by that negative action. And it's just amazing how as humans we forget so many good things when one bad thing happens. And so, as we keep that in mind, and by the way, when we we forget God's goodness, which is where we're going to get today, when we forget God's goodness, it's very easy to fall out of obedience, doing the things he's asked us to do, not doing the things he's asked us not to do. And I'm going to show you the direct correlation between obedience and being aware of God's goodness. And that's in today's passage and uh, I'm sure you've seen it in your life. But the good news today is that God is gracious to provide for his people, for us, even when we're disobedient. So if you don't hear anything else, hear that this morning uh, as we turn to Exodus chapter 16. We're going to start in verses 2 through 4. I'll read it to you. It'll be on the screens. And I encourage you to follow along in your pew Bible. Uh, and while you turn there, just join me in a moment of prayer. Father God, We thank you for uh, the gift of your written word. We thank you for the living example of faith uh, that we find here and the very realistic examples of faith that we see in the text this morning. We pray that uh, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, as we read your word together this morning. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 through 4. 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now, I know that you guys would never do that to your pastors. 
to have the whole congregation grumbling at once. But just try to bear with me. It'll become more and more realistic and believable as we go. Um, so they, the whole people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt uh, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, it's interesting to note, first of all, this is the first command God has given to his people in in the book of Exodus. So we're in chapter 16, very low requirements. So there's the blood on the door, and then this is the command. This is how you're going to collect the bread, and you're going to eat it. Um, And so... What we're going to see here, and this will continue to develop as the passage goes on, is, uh, now if you recall, last week's sermon, if we go back two weeks, God frees them from bondage, from slavery, systemic slavery as a whole people group. They were freed from that two weeks ago. Last week, they're freed and they go to the Red Sea and the army of Egypt is coming behind them. God parts the sea for them to walk through and then collapses it on the army of Egypt so it destroys the oppressing army and sets them free. And now this week, they're upset and they're whining because they're hungry. And so it's, it's, uh, we're going to see a lot of things going on here. But the first thing that I want to draw your attention to is this. Their obsession with comfort, their obsession with security, has led them to doubt Moses and God despite everything they've already seen and experienced. They've just... Witness miracles. By the way, never say to me, as a, you can say it to Drew, I guess, because he's not up here, but never say to me, you know, I would just have more faith if I could, you know, if I just saw a miracle from God. It's like, well, that's, we've got a whole book of that happening and people not believing. People forgetting. They have very short memory cycles when it comes to seeing these things. And God, you know, is still faithful to perform those miracles. But so in their, their desire for comfort, and their lack of comfort creates this fear, this anxiety that kind of builds up in them. And in that anxiety, it causes them to reframe their own history. And now, not ancient history. They're not going back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and remembering those stories wrong. They're remembering what happened last week incorrectly. And if you don't believe me, uh, they did this uh, in chapter 14 last week. Now, this is a, an exact quote from chapter 12 of 14 or verse 12 of chapter 14. Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, I know we're not all biblical scholars, but is that what the people said when Moses came to them in Egypt? Oh, no, we like slavery. Leave us here. We're we're good. Uh, You know, we're fine with this bondage. Not a problem. You know, we're just going to keep working here. uh, And it would be better to do that than follow you. Well, we happen to know that's not what they said. If you... uh, want to just make a note, I'll read it to you. This is chapter 4, verses 29 to 31. If I turn to the right page, it is. There we go. Uh, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke to them all the words that God had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Now, that's a little different than they remember it, 
right? That's a little different than saying, oh, no, Moses, go away. You know, we, we just want to stay here. We like working for the Egyptians. So that's what this uh, anxiety has done to them. They've changed their tune. They don't even remember how they felt a month ago because they're so distraught right now with their current need. And so many of us, uh, we come to church with this expectation, uh, this need to uh, see, feel, hear, experience X, Y, or Z. You can fill in the blank with whatever you want. We have our own expectations of what we need from God, um, but we're likely to forget. Whatever that thing we think we need is, we're likely to forget about it uh, when hard times arise. And that's why, uh, you know, as a as a pastor, you know, we're, it's referred to as minister of the word. The commission for a pastor is to teach the full counsel of God's word. That's everything from Genesis to Revelation. And that's what we're doing right now in the Gospel Project in the middle hour. It's going from Genesis to Revelation. And because you don't know which passage you need to hear. You might think you do, but you don't. And only through reading the full counsel of God's word will we have all of those experiences. We'll learn all of these lessons uh, together. And so it is good to go through God's word together. But fear and anxiety do something to us. And in fact, I'm going to use a word here, which will come up again and again as we keep going through the scripture. And it's the word idol. And an idol is, uh, now in, in their times, you would physically carve an idol uh, out of, you know, some kind of God that you would use to bow down and worship to it. And you said, you know, I need to see a physical thing to worship. So they would create these things. But really an idol is anything you place your trust in above your trust in God. And so for us, very few of us end up uh, making idols or buying idols and worshiping them. But many of us live our lives in such a way that suggests there's something we trust more than we trust God. And here you see them idolizing comfort. And they care more about their own comfort, their own hunger, than they do about their relationship with God. And so when we have this fear, anxiety, and when you have these idols in your life, it will distort your understanding of who you are and where you've been and how you got there and everything we know about God. And so that's the the devastating effect that things like this have. Now, trust in God is, you know, our, our ultimate calling as a Christian. That's the defining mark of a Christian. But trust like in God, like trust in all relationships, is built over time. It's accumulated from a history of experiences. And so one, it's, it's right that we remember those experiences correctly, like the people are not doing here, and it's written down now for us to see. Uh, but it's also, uh, important that God builds it on this foundation. Now, do you remember in, in, uh, Exodus 3 and 4, first week of this sermon series, God comes to Moses and he identifies himself as who? The God of, does anybody know? Starts with an A. Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. And why does he do that? Because everyone in the, in the Jewish people, the people of Israel knew the stories of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And he's saying, look, you know, this is the trust that's been built. I've got a demonstrated relationship of trustworthiness, faithfulness, and you can rely on me. And so, uh, each of them recall their own stories and now they're living through their own story. And so we gather on Sundays, we hear the gospel proclaimed and we're reminded of this story that we uh, are broken and misguided and in bondage to sin and we are ultimately set free and redeemed by Jesus. Now, as we keep going, 
We saw that God, he provides for his people in their time of need. They need bread, and so he provides bread. But as we keep going, we're going to be in uh, chapter 16, verses 13 to 20 now. And we're going to see that he provides for them even when they're disobedient. And so, starting in verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer, which is two liters, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it left over till morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Now what happened here? Because we're seeing another form of idolatry in this passage. And so the short answer here is that they did not trust in God to provide for them, but instead they trusted in their own abilities to manage their resources or manage their life. And so by collecting and hoarding as much bread as possible, they thought they could buy themselves security for days to come and wouldn't need to rely on God in the future. Now security is one of the most popular idols in modern America. This notion of, I will be able to manage everything for myself and by myself a secure and comfortable future for many years to come. But let me tell you a story, and many of you are probably familiar with it, although the numbers may still shock. But if one of you uh, or all of you were citizens uh, in Germany in 1921, let's say you were 60 years old and you're getting ready to retire in Germany in 1921, and... Uh, they have their currency is called the mark, and so you had, uh, let's say, uh, well, first let me let me tell you the ratio. 1921, January 1921, 90 marks was worth one U.S. dollar. So, if you're doing pretty well and you'd saved up, you know, for years and years to come, you had 45 million marks in the bank. That would be worth 500,000 U.S. dollars, half a million dollars, right? That's not bad. You've done pretty well for yourself, but by November of 1923, and I, I typed incorrectly at first service, I said 1932, which was shocking, but you guys get the real shock. By November of 1932, the exchange rate had dropped so bad that it went from 1921, 90 marks equaled one U.S. dollar, to in 1923, it took 4.2 trillion marks to make one U.S. dollar, meaning your 45 million marks in the bank went from being worth 500,000 U.S. dollars to less than one U.S. penny in two years. And it doesn't matter how clever you are. It doesn't matter how good you are with money, how resourceful, how, how diverse your portfolio is, right? It doesn't matter. That just happened to you. And so if we put all of our trust all of our sense of meaning, all of our self, sense of identity and self and purpose in securing a future for yourself, 
when we uh, when we idolize security, we value that, and what we're really valuing is our own ability over our reliance on God. And here's the real kicker: when people decided to keep bread for themselves uh, overnight, what they were saying is, uh, "I don't want to have to rely on God to do this for me tomorrow. I want to be able to rely on myself." to correctly store and hold this uh, and properly manage it. And so, um, as we move on, uh, this is not to say, by the way, that you shouldn't save or that it's unwise to invest in your future and take care of yourself. That you can take a deep, can just take a deep breath out right now. For those of you who have nice savings accounts, just go, okay. Because if you read the Proverbs, it actually describes wisdom as uh, one who, you know, manages their money well, one who looks out for their own future and provision. The difference is not whether you do that or not, it's where your faith is placed while you're doing that. Are you putting your faith in your own ability to manage and secure yourself a future, or are you trusting in God to do that and you're just uh, wisely managing the things that he has entrusted you with? And the, the, the New Testament speaks to this in a couple different ways. First, he says that you cannot trust in both God and money. You can't trust in God to provide for you and trust in your ability to gather, grow, and manage resources. One will always outrank the other. And so one of them you will be serving and one of them will be serving you. And I'll suggest to you this morning that if you are serving money and expecting God to serve you, you have it backwards. And that will not end well because that is disordered love. As uh, St. Augustine calls it, it's loving uh, good and healthy things, but you love them in the wrong order. Love of God has to outrank all other loves uh, in your life. And so in light of this passage, by the way, it should not surprise us that when Jesus was asked, uh, how do we pray? What, what line did he give them that sounds vaguely familiar now? Give us this day our daily bread. Meaning, don't give us a bunch of stuff and then push us off the shore and trust us to manage it. It's no, it's daily bread. You know, we need God in our lives daily. We, we can't advance day to day without assistance, without relying on God. But here's the surprising thing about this passage is that God does this despite their disobedience. Cause it says in the passage that people kept it and then it was filled with worms the next morning. And so you got these people with worm bread, uh, that's gone bad overnight. And God still puts out new bread for them. And so what this uh, shows us here and what I really am uh, just struck by here is that God is willing to provide for us even when we're disobedient, which then begs the question for some of us of uh, why be obedient then? Well, it actually gives us the proper motivation for obedience. And so imagine this, uh, or maybe even remember this. Imagine you're seven years old. Some of you might not even have to imagine. Um, you might be seven. But if you're seven years old and your chore every week is to take out the garbage on Thursday night and you wake up Friday morning and see empty cans on the neighbor's driveway, you realize, one, it's garbage day, two, you forgot, and three, it's too late. So that, all, that sounds realistic, right? It happens to me about every three weeks. Um, Now, but if you're seven and you do that and your parents have given you this chore and said, we need you to be obedient, we need you to do this thing for us, and you fail to do it, how many of you 
growing up would have been concerned that, uh uh-oh, my parents are going to kick me out of the house. I'm going to have to sleep on the street until next Thursday when I can put the cans out. Okay, if anyone feels that way, I'm going to set you up with Jean in our counseling center, and uh, she, she can help because that's not how parents should act. And that's not how God acts because uh, we don't have to, they don't have to worry about being kicked out of the house or even missing all their meals because of their disobedience because the parents love the child enough that they are going to provide those basic things for them whether they're being obedient or not. And notice I picked a seven-year-old instead of a 13-year-old uh, for this example because none of us should have to live in that kind of fear. Uh, but... This is how God is with his people. They disobey him, but he doesn't want to destroy them. He's not trying to punish them. He still uh, provides for them. And the answer to all of that is this. His love and his care and his grace towards them was never based on their performance. We got this far in Exodus before he's asked anything of them. He has delivered them and he's brought them through the Red Sea and he has not asked for anything in return. And then he gives them this test and says, just keep this bread, just eat it, and just enjoy it. I'm, I'm going to be bringing it back tomorrow. Just don't save it overnight. They save it overnight, and it goes bad. And guess what? They still have bread to eat. Because God can't help but be good. He can't help but act loving toward his people. And so if you still have the question now of, well, why bother with obedience? If God takes care of people even when they're disobedient, why bother with obedience? And uh, if you're asking that question, which is a fair question, but it suggests that you're missing the point. You've not really processed the depth of the love of God. It's not sunk in. You might be able to repeat the phrase back to me, but it isn't in your heart yet. It's not made the, the you know, nine-inch uh, journey from your brain to your heart. And so what you really need to do is you need to reflect on all that God has provided you, you need to think about that and you need to look uh, at your life to see how how faithful God has been. And so the seven-year-old does not put out the trash cans every week in fear of living on the street, but they do it because they realize all that their parents have provided for them uh, and all that is continuing to be provided and they want to show love back to their parents and so they are willing to do these chores. And I see parents smiling right now and I'm just going to keep going. That illustration works. I don't have kids so it works theoretically, uh, maybe better than in practice. But uh, that is the reason for obedience, not fear of being kicked out or rejected, but uh, as a response to love. And it's only that attitude that can give you to live in obedience to God. Because if you think you're trying to earn something that's already been given to you, uh, you'll be devastated by success and you'll be excessive, or you'll be devastated by failure and you'll be excessively proud with success. But what this does is it keeps you in humble reliance on God. And so as we move into our final, that was the longest point, I promise. But as we move into our final passage, it's Exodus chapter 17 verses 3 through 7. And I'm going to read it to you. It'll be on the screens. And you're uh, welcome to uh, read along in the in the Bible, whatever is easier for you. But chapter 17, verse 3, But the people there thirsted for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, 
Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Before, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Harab, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so by the way, I know some, sometimes people look for, um, good biblical names for, you know, uh, uh, kids or a pet, uh, Masa and Meribah, just so you know, Masa means testing and Meribah means quarreling. So I'd keep looking if those names, you know, had any appeal to you, um, Maybe a beloved pet or something could have that name. But wouldn't name a kid that. Because that is how Moses feels now is they're still, they're still grumbling, they're still complaining, and, uh, they, they needed freedom and they got freedom and then they needed bread and they got bread and now they need water and they're like, Moses, are you trying to kill us? You're like, why have you brought us out here to, and Moses is just like, Lord, I can't take it anymore. So he goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, okay, pick up your staff. And Moses is like, finally, you know, go whip him into shape, right? I'm going to hit, I'm going to take my rod and we're just going to whack some sense into him. Uh, but that's not what he says to do. Probably much to Moses' disappointment seemed like a fair response. But instead, he tells him to strike a rock in the middle of the desert. And out of that rock flows a river of water for the people And so God provides, again, despite their disobedience, despite their doubt, despite their grumbling, despite them turning on God himself and on God's uh, selfless servant, Moses, God is still providing for his people. And so Moses struck the rod uh, against the rock instead of striking the people, and water flowed out for the people's salvation. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus is the rock who was struck for our salvation, and the rock whose living water satisfies us forever. Now you may notice in this passage we're dealing with bread and water, and in the Gospel of John there are seven I am sayings from Jesus, where he says, I am fill in the blank. He doesn't say that, but um and two of them are he says, I am the bread of life, and I am living water. And so as you see this, you connect the, the pieces of the story, parts that may not have seemed to be uh, in unison or in harmony, but are actually uh, flowing together and working uh, wonderfully. And so, it's all too easy to read a passage like this today, and and I've hinted at it in my reading, that you read this passage and you just think, man, these people are terrible. They don't deserve anything. Poor Moses. Poor God. But I have news for you, and it's not going to be your favorite news, But if I had to put each of us in this story, we wouldn't be Moses, we wouldn't be God, we would probably be the people of Israel. The people who see God's goodness every Sunday at church. We hear the gospel proclaimed, we sing of his goodness, we experience you know, the the gifts and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and we walk away and live our lives like people who don't believe that. We live in disobedience. We don't do the things we're supposed to do, we do things we're not supposed to do, and we don't act like people who have received that love from God. And so if we're honest with ourselves, we have to realize that those are the people in the story that we identify with most. And so God has provided, um, and now this is interesting, and this is one of the last things I'm going to say. But if you were to ask a Jewish person to sum up the book of Exodus uh, for them, they would say, well, 
We were uh, in bondage and God delivered us. And then through his covenant mediator, he gave us law and provided for us in our needs until he led us into our home. And it's actually the same story that we tell from the New Testament. We are all in bondage to sin. And there's a covenant mediator that's even greater than Moses, what the book of Hebrews says, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate covenant mediator who brings God's goodness to our lives and brings us imperfect as we are to God and leads us in the way that God would have us go. And so God has provided this ultimate covenant mediator in Jesus with the greatest act of love the world has ever known. And yet we still fail to live in obedience to him. But by the grace of Jesus Christ, we are able to keep in right relationship with God who is perfectly holy and demands perfection. He demands obedience while we continually fall short of his standard. Our trust, our security, our comfort, our happiness, and our salvation must be continually placed in Jesus because he is the only right way to have a relationship with God. Would you please join me in prayer?